Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Zoe Heller, a novelist and essayist whose work appears frequently in the New York Times, The New Yorker, and elsewhere. Her best-known novel, Notes on a Scandal, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and made into a film starring Kate Blanchett and Judi Dench. Born in London in 1965, Heller pursued a career in journalism and now lives in New York City, where she writes about politics, literature, and culture more broadly. Zoe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to ask you something because there's a lot going on in the in the cultural world and in the political world. I read an old interview that you gave, and this is what you said. You said, the point of fiction is not to offer up moral avatars, but to engage with people whose politics or point of view are unpleasant or contradictory. Hearing that now in this was given like, you know, seven years ago or something. Hearing that in the world we live in now, what what, what does it make you think? Well, I think what it makes me think is it was actually a slightly inaccurately reported quote, uh, because I don't think the point of fiction uh, is to write about unpleasant people. Uh, I was being asked a question about why so many of my characters were, in quotes, unlikable. Um, And uh, it was a question that I'd grown rather tired of at that point. Um, That's why I didn't start with it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, that particular question, not this one. um, That was a different question about why my writing um, dealt with so many unsympathetic characters. Uh, But yeah, sure, if if what you're getting at is that um, fiction ought to be attempting to make some bridge uh, between political positions or... try to uh, broaden our moral imaginations and understand people who aren't like us. I think that's a, a reasonable a reasonable idea. So It's rather like Wonder Woman. Uh, I just went to see the movie the other day, and uh, she's meant to be a, a bridge between humans. I'm, I'm not sure I'm quoting her correctly, but she's definitely uh, trying to connect non-kindred souls. Well, so as as a novelist and as someone who writes a lot about politics, having observed the last couple years in America, I mean, w- what do you make of the people who are running the country? I almost said ruining. That would have been a Freudian slip. <laughs> as characters, but also, I mean, do you feel like you're being a novelist, the way you think about people has given you maybe some insight into them that other people don't have? I'm not trying to get you to pat yourself on the back, but, you know, this is your this is your work. No, absolutely not. I, I don't. I don't feel uh, better equipped to understand them. Um, I don't know whether there is much there there with Trump. Um, and increasingly, you know, initially there were. I, I realized I had a kind of fairly insatiable anthropological interest in listening to everything every time he spoke on the radio and so on. And increasingly, I find myself. You know, I kind of glance myself in a mirror and see that I'm grimacing when I hear him on NPR and have to turn it off. It, it, it's no longer um, interesting. I, I've exhausted whatever uh, pleasure I got from just seeing this kind of American berserk person uh, perform. And I, I just rather kind of switch it off. Uh, but no, I, I don't have any... Um, deep insights into these people. Well, let me ask you, it's interesting to me that you said American berserk rather than berserk, um, which is obviously your 
originally from England. But Trump is definitely an American type in a way that I think Americans may not realize it, that we can sort of see that, you know, Berlusconi is a very Italian type or something. But are there ways in which Trump is particularly American that stick out to you that seem particularly shocking? Well, yeah, just to uh, th- th- that phrase, American berserk, I can't claim it as mine. I believe it is uh, Philip Roth who used that. And what he was actually saying, which is germane to this conversation, he was saying that, you know, uh, increasingly American society had outstripped, um, you know, f- fictions, inventions about what might happen. Um, this idea of him being uh, peculiarly American, yes, of course he is in some ways. But I remember that uh, in the run-up to the election, sort of being outraged by uh, a kind of a particular sort of British commentary on the elections, um, which had it that you know this was inexplicable, um, incomprehensible to the British or even the European mind because no one of that type could possibly um, be electable in those countries. And it seemed to me palpably not the case. Um, You know, uh, you mentioned Berlusconi, uh, Putin, uh, this, his name escapes me now, but the guy who um, has since resigned from UKIP, the British... Nigel Farage. Thank you. Um, There are all kinds of... uh, sort of populist, demagogue, kind of ludicrous figures, certainly in the case of Berlusconi. Um, also with Putin, you know, if you think about him riding around bare-chested on horses and so on, uh, it doesn't seem to me that the um, capacity, the, the kind of uh, – the Americans' ability to kind of fall for someone like Trump is an exclusively American failing. I agree. But just to to bring this back to where we started, there's something about Trump, about his nastiness that that does surprise me and still surprises me. And I will never stop being surprised by it, which is, you know, Berlusconi could at least, I feel like, try to be more charming. Putin isn't really. I mean, he's sort of elected. But I I, I guess for me, the Trump's nastiness just as a human being and the way he used that and the way he got away with it is something that still shocks me about this country. And I I wasn't I, I never thought we were immune to kind of authoritarianism, but I never thought it would be someone who was so grotesque. Right. Well, I, I know I'm not the first person to say this, but I think uh, part of the appeal was precisely that, you know, it was all that stuff about he's so in- incorrect. Um, he is the guy in the bar who, you know, speaks as he finds and isn't afraid to say – um, to talk about how many pussies he's grabbed or, um, you know, what we really think about the darkies or any number of other stereotypes. Um, I think that was immensely appealing because it, because I think more and more, uh, uh, you know, this is international. There is, um, some idea of some longing for authenticity. It's actually been cited as one of the things that made people vote for Corbyn this time around, that the, precisely the things that people thought made him unelectable, that he was scruffy and not a terrifically good speaker, um, made him see, seem like, you know, a real bloke. And I think the same went in, although he's a completely different character, the same went for Trump and all that buffoonery and unpleasantness. 
Um, I want to read you one other thing that you wrote, and I promise this whole show will not be me <laughs> reading you old quotes. But uh, this was not that long ago, several months ago. It was about Hillary, okay. Hillary Clinton. You had an essay uh, about her in the New York Review of Books, and you said that, horrid though it is that men have criticized Clinton's figure and voice and called her Hillary and declared themselves repulsed at the idea of her going to the toilet, none of these things are very good or grown-up motives for electing her to the highest office in the land. It would be a fine thing to have a woman in the White House. But really, let's not put her there because someone once said she had cankles. That was the end of the piece. Um, I was wondering when you hear me read that, I mean, what uh, Hillary's kind of reemerged a little bit in the last couple months. You've obviously been very critical of her. Do you I, I'm not asking you to take back anything you wrote. I'm sure you probably agree with it. But do, do you think the focus on Hillary Clinton as her as a person, the, the further we get from the election seems more and more ridiculous? Or do you think? Oh, absolutely. OK, I, there I, you I go. Can, I no, I completely agree with that. But my point, actually, in that piece, and I have to say, I lost friends over that piece. Um, it was uh, a good deal more uh, enraging to people than I had imagined. Um, my point was precisely that uh, I voted for Clinton, and I voted for her in the primaries um, over Bernie. And I thought she had a, a pretty great platform. And one of the things I always thought was astonishing was um, how little people were prepared to acknowledge that her platform was uh, that, you know, she was no more of a centrist than beloved Obama had been. Um, and my problem was I didn't like um, the, the the real sort of push of that piece was about selling her as uh, the first woman president and that being a sort of central plank of the campaign, that it was a marvelous and um, inspiring thing that she would be the first woman president and do more for women than anyone else was ever going to do. Um, I thought that was a mistake. I, th I, I actually think, I didn't write about this in that piece, I actually think retrospectively that it was a mistake when uh, Trump said all those things about women the pussy grabbing and so on. I was going to say you um, have to narrow that down. You can't just say the okay, nasty yeah, things the, Trump the, said about women. There's no specific day. <laughs> okay, specifically the 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 pussy grabbing episode. Um, there was a great deal about you know the the traumatic memories that this had um, evoked in women, and um, that of course it was impossible that we could have uh, a president who owned up to sexual harassment of that sort. Um, it seemed to me that actually, to, I mean, it's the case that uh, we know now that a large part of the female electorate did not feel um, particularly outraged by it. They sort of shrugged their shoulders at it. So I think it was a miscalculation of um, how universally women would rise up against that kind of sentiment. But and and I realize this is a again going to be an unpopular view. It seemed to me uh, most of our kind of liberal slash democratic heroes of the last fifty years more um, had uh, non exemplary views about women. Uh, they weren't caught on tape saying what Trump said, but Clinton, JFK. Even God bless him, MLK. We now know, in some detail, uh, we're, we're not uh, exemplary figures when it came to 
uh, women's rights or or their kind of respect in their private lives for women. I, um, yeah, no, I think the thing that about Trump, not to excuse JFK or Bill Clinton, I uh, obviously. Um, I think the thing about Trump that really disturbed people and that did make it feel different was the pussy grabbing tape felt such a part of who he was in other ways. And in fact, in almost sort of this like, I mean, this is a guy who said, like, we're going to go to Iraq and steal their oil, right? It was a sense of like, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want and we don't care. And to see that represented so clearly in his private life, I think there was something extra scary about that where Martin Luther King may have talked about certain values that he betrayed in his private life. But that felt, again, more like hypocrisy than it did just pure id in private and public, which is scary. Yeah, the sort of beavis and butthead aspect of Trump, which is what you were referring to before. Um, it turns out <laughs> that quite a lot of people like Beavis and Butthead, even as president. I want to go back just for people who don't know your career. So you you were born in London. What was your first job in journalism? I know you started working in, in print journalism in Britain in the late 80s. Wow, you know a lot. Um, uh, I had, I'm sort of the one of the sort of last people to have experienced uh, kind of journalism in its heyday when you still got, you know, I was writing book reviews as a freelancer and I got offered out of the blue a feature writing job on a paper called The Independent on Sunday. And um, it was a sort of dream job. Uh, it was the supplement to the Sunday newspaper um, and they sent me to report on street children in Brazil and on steel workers uh, in the north of England. And I ended up writing mainly profiles for them. But, you know, it, they weren't profiles, the kind of celebrity profiles that um, I subsequently did where you had to kind of find a hook or you were essentially being sent off to do Jennifer Lawrence because she had a big movie coming out. You just sort of picked up the phone and said, I'd quite like to talk to Susan Sontag. And um, in those days, for some reason, people people didn't have as, as much sort of PR stuff around them. And they would uh, more often than not say, sure, come over. Um, so it was a great job. That's how I got started. And what did you make of sort of British newspaper culture. How did you enjoy it? it? There's a there's been a lot written about it, both not both in terms of fiction and nonfiction about just what that culture is like. And as you say, you were kind of what seems in in a way. I mean, obviously there's still newspapers in Britain, but that seems like in a way the end of the heyday of that culture. Yeah, I feel I guess largely nostalgic for it. One of the things which I think is still apparent in. Um, British journalism, as opposed to, say, American journalism, is it's, it's, I mean, being a journalist has always been a much less respectable um, profession in England. And because there were a lot of papers, particularly at the time I, I was working in journalism, uh, you know, you had three, four broadsheets competing in what is a quite small country and a bunch of tabloid papers. Um, it was, uh, it was kind of jauntier and more flying by the seat of your pants and, um, wittier often and naughtier. Uh, it was more fun and it didn't take itself quite as seriously. Now there's something to be said for taking your reporting seriously. Um, I have enormous respect for, um, 
the the seriousness of American reporting. Um, but I tend to find that the uh, print kind of cultural stuff is a bit more staid and predictable. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm gonna. Here I am again, making friends and influencing people. No, please. I, can, um, I think that often one can predict the reasonable on the one hand and on the other uh, position that a review in a. Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to mention names. In a, you know, no, no, okay, no. Name the, names. Name names. Is it in the New York Times or in the Washington Post? You're you're likely to you're you're. It's rare that you're really uh, taken aback by um, a, somebody's position on a cultural phenomenon or on a book or anything else. That there tends to be a sort of um, there are very good writers and people I admire all the time. And but uh, there's a it's a little bit what um, Elizabeth Hardwick wrote all those years ago. Uh, prior to the founding of the New York Review of Books, you know, she wrote that swinging essay about uh, the sort of lily-livered nature of most book reviewing. Um, there's a general reluctance to, it's not about writing hatchet jobs, of which I have been accused. It's more about... I thought you um, would proudly admit to that rather than say you were accused no, of it. No, I hate the idea of... In fact, I'm always saying to people, please send me something that you know I might be enthusiastic about. I'm trying rather late in the day, and I fear too late in the day, um, <laughs> to uh, get rid of that reputation such as it is. Um, but yeah, no, I, I just... Uh, it's it's probably the case that some of British journalism is sort of nastier and uh, and even bitchier, but it's often sort of funnier and more truthful, I think. Have you ever had bad experiences writing pieces about people and then coming into contact with them? Oh, <laughs> more often than not, yes. Uh, let me think. I mean, starting from when I was a very young woman, I, I can't even remember the name of the guy who approached me and said, you made me cry. Um, there was a fantastic one. She has since become a friend. And this is actually, this is a good story to tell because it's such a tribute to her. Okay. I wrote what was not at all a kind review um, of Tony Bentley's book, which was called The Surrender. And was about, I'm not sure whether, am I allowed to say this on this podcast? It was about you can the joys anything. of anal sex. Okay. Um, and uh, so it was a, a big review in, um, I guess, the New York Sunday Times book review. And I was going with my friend Hilton Ols to a party. He said, oh, come along to this party. It's such fun. And in the cab there, he said, yes, and so on and so forth. And Tony Bentley. Well, and I said, what, you mean she's holding this party? I can't go. I mean, it's one thing to trash someone's book, but you it's just bad manners to then crash their party. And he said, oh, don't be silly. Are you being, are you scared? And I said, I'm not scared of anything. So of course, so I went and he said, it's very, it's a huge party and she, you know, you, you'll, she's not going to notice you and she doesn't know what you look like. Okay, fine. And I'm sitting there on a little sofa and I see her approaching and I recognize her from her author photo, and she walks along this line, and I'm feeling more and more nervous. And then she reached out and says, reaches out her hand and says, "Hello." And who are you? And I say, 
you know, I cannot tell a lie. I say, Zoe Heller, at which point she says very dramatically, oh, you wrote that review and it made me cry. And it was a very terrible moment. And it felt as if there were kind of Klieg lights on me. And, um, you know, it's various largely men, the crowd of men who were around us sort of shrank back as if, you know, this was going to be a kind of gladiatorial <laughs> moment. And um, I said something about, uh, you can imagine, I mean, it was very hard to think, you're not going to, you can't take it back. You can't say, ah, yes, I realized that was wrong. Uh, so I said, I mentioned somebody, a very distinguished, um, oh, you know who it was? It was Leon Weaseltier who had rung me up and said that I was wrong and that actually it was a much better book than um, I had suggested. And so I said, well, you know, there were plenty of people who disagreed with that and here's one of them. And she smiled and said, oh, I think we're going to be great friends and sat down and we have become friends. And I think that I'm not sure I could be that magnanimous. And uh, I have great admiration for her and I think she's a funny, smart woman who writes very well. Well, that, that begs the question of how you react when you've gotten bad reviews as a novelist. Oh, you know, I stay up all night gnashing my teeth and, um, you know, making little voodoo dolls <laughs> of the people who have dissed me. Um, but I don't, I, I, I would never, I think, confront somebody only on, uh, on the basis that I think it's sort of, generally speaking, it, it doesn't work for you very well. You know, it doesn't, it's not satisfactory. You don't get the person to say, I'm so ashamed or um, I take it all back. Um, and if their intention has been malicious, um, you have given them the prize they sought, right? So uh, I, I haven't ever reacted publicly, but I have certainly, um, you know, been anguished in private. Um, just one one more British question, which is uh, there was recently an election in Britain, which Theresa May won, but she um, did much worse than people were expecting. Mm. And I, she's someone, a uh, very powerful female politician who has gone to great lengths, I think, to kind of form an image of herself in a certain way. And it seems to have backfired a little bit. And I was I was wondering what you made of the image she sort of constructed as this tough, no-nonsense prime minister and uh, maybe comparing that to But Hill you know, Isaac, what's interesting mm. about that is uh, the, the great irony, uh, and there are many, I think most of what this election tells us is that no one knows anything, you know, like William Goldman said about uh, how to make movies and what was going to succeed. Right. Um, it's a, you know, puzzling, complicated uh, election result in many ways. But the interesting thing about Theresa May is that she was in a sense... Um, she has for some time put herself forward as somebody doing a kind of conservative version of triangulation. She was the one who stood up at the Conservative Party conference some years ago and said, you know, uh, it's time to change. We have to take on some of the kind of uh, social issues and values that have traditionally been not, not monopolized by Labour um, because we're known as the nasty party and we have right. to get rid of that reputation. And she has, you know, much more than uh, recent stuff by the Tories and certainly than her, uh, than Margaret Thatcher before her, has embraced sort of, um, you know, the government intervention and looking after your people. And um, she's actually tried to be 
uh, a more caring, sharing Tory party. You know, I was just to bring this full circle. I mean, it was interesting to me, though, you know, the tabloids just and much of the British media went full out against Corbyn and uh, it didn't mm-hmm. seem to have quite the desired effect. And I was wondering if that's young people in the tabloids. It doesn't have the same kind of impact that it did for an older generation. I don't know if you thought about that or if you saw any of the tabloid covers that Corbyn. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with what you know was that his, his, you know, supposed support for the IRA and uh, things he's probably said about Hamas in the past. Uh, I think one of the main reasons why that didn't have the desired effect is that um, I saw, I think this morning, the Economist or the FT saying that the youth vote had increased by about 12% um, since... I think the, the since the Brexit referendum, and I think one of the things that the Brexit referendum did is galvanize uh, uh, the youth vote, you know, the people who had sort of sat it out, um, and that uh, the youth vote, you know, that young people have become uh, more active and politicized. Uh, and first of all, <laughs> they, young people are less inclined to remember who the IRA were, um, and they're by and large, much more liberal and prepared to say that actually it might be a good idea to um, negotiate with the IRA or with Hamas or for, with Al-Qaeda for that matter. So before I let you go, uh, are you are you working on anything at the moment? After a long gap, uh, like it's about 10 years since I wrote a novel, I'm trying to write a novel. What made you decide to go back to it? Well, I've never sort of uh, gone away from it. Um, it's just as I've grown older, um, uh, I don't know whether it's one grows tougher on oneself or less confident in how interesting what one has to say is, something like that. Anyway, I'm trying to drum up the confidence. Well, hopefully you won't get any bad reviews and uh, destroy your confidence going forward. <laughs> I'm sure I will. That's okay. Uh, Zoe Heller, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Chris Barube. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. Don't miss out on more episodes of the show. Go to slate.com slash ask to subscribe. That's slate.com slash A-S-K. One other thing today, I want to recommend another Slate podcast, which is called Trumpcast. The hosts are Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamel Bowie. They rotate, and they talk about all things Trump. They go deep on his latest tweets, his scandals. They have questions for him. They air their concerns. It's a really phenomenal podcast covering all things Trump, and I really encourage people to listen to it. It's called Trumpcast, and you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.